Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Uh, and my co-host today is not only a passionate and skilled storyteller, but an encourager of other authors. Uh, Kathy Antrim is, has served as the past co-president of International Thriller Writers, uh, and she coordinates programs with best-selling novelists to meet with and encourage troops overseas. Um, and Kathy and I have been friends for a number of years, and it's really great to hear your voice and to know that you're you're, you're able to join us today. So, uh, Kathy, thanks for picking up the microphone. And, hey, and join, Stephen, join it's so you. great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and, um, and Kathy, I know one of your uh, specialties over the years that you've done a lot of is coaching people on pitches. Um, and so as we talk today, if if there's ever a time where you think of something related to that whole idea, I know a lot of people are always interested in how do I actually do that. So sure, maybe we'll take sure. a minute before you know, before we close up. But before we get to that, um, our guest for today is um, – is Sue Grafton. She entered the mystery field with the publication of A is for Alibi in 1982 and has been working her way through the alphabet ever since. Over the years, she's won nearly every award in the mystery category, from the McCavity to the Anthony to the, mystery, uh, to the American Mystery Award. Her books have been popular bestsellers in 28 countries, and she's not only an expert at crafting intriguing mysteries, but is, renowned expert, is a renowned expert in the field and has edited the book Writing Mysteries from Writer's Digest Books. So, Sue, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Well, it's fun to be here. I love to talk about the process of writing. You know, we get into being quizzed about our past history, and who cares? You know, it's just, can you write a good sentence today? Yeah, it's it's interesting the way you said that, because, like, so many people are like, where do you get your ideas? Oh. And one of the things I said to people once is like, look, I'm not in the um, business of ideas. I'm in the business of words. The question is not where do I get my ideas. It's what will be the next word. Right, and, right. Um, and so, yeah, you're right, sentences. And... Well, and part of it, too, is it isn't so much the idea is can you execute it. There are people with fabulous ideas, and they sit down at their computers, and what comes out is dribble. So it, I keep trying to coach writers coming into the business. It takes years to learn to write well years and i don't know that people these days are willing to put in the time i hope so you know we need right. writers you know sue i have a question i mean on the on the line of how do you come up with your ideas how do you evaluate an idea to decide whether or not it can sustain a novel part well one of my my method of working which will tie into this i keep a journal for every novel that i write and I remember the journal for W ran 1,268 single-spaced pages. The book itself was about 660 double-spaced. So that's a wow. huge ratio of thinking to actual words on the page. But the journal is where I talk to myself about what I'm doing because my theory is that if I'm afraid or if I'm worried – I'll sabotage my work if I don't own that. So I mm -hmm. put it down. It's like today I am really scared. I don't know how to handle this scene. I think the pacing is off. And by talking to myself about what I'm doing, 
it helps me to clarify the job. And with that, I mean, I know our listeners are probably wondering, you know, after so many books, do you still become afraid when you sit down and stare at that blank page? I mean, I know myself, I, I deal with fear all the time. Me too. Do you still deal with that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And part of what I tell myself is trust the process. The process is full of fear and anxiety because I also make a distinction between ego and shadow. Ego is our public persona, what we want the world to think we are, smart, productive, generous. And the truth is our shadow self, which is usually mean-spirited and petty and jealous (laughs) of other writers, that's where all the creative energy is. So if you work too hard to look good, you're cutting yourself off from that dark matter that, in fact, is what gives us good writing. So, again, part of my process with the journal is to get out of my own way. So when you're first, you know, trying to decide, you know, I'm on my next letter in the alphabet and I need to come up with some germ of an idea that's going to carry this novel for, you know, through the oh, whole the whole book. How do you pages. decide what's going to work and what isn't and what's going to what you're going to want to live with for a year? Part of it is that I am not going to repeat myself. So I come up with an idea and I have keep long log lines for every novel I've written and I go back and very carefully analyze every book in the series and if the new idea bears any resemblance I'll I'll kick it out you know I can't afford to work on an idea I've done before mm-hmm. it's it's tempting and it feels comfortable and you'll tell yourself oh this is new fresh and different but if you if you look at what you've done in the past you can see where you've come right back around to the same story i mean people like Faulkner could do it, <laughs> but if I do it, it's called, you know, cheating or laziness. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I'm i working on right now on a, on a novel that's, I think it's the maybe the 10th in the series, and I'm finding the same struggle. Like, I'll say, oh, I could have this great warehouse scene. No, no, I use the warehouse scene in a yeah. second. Oh, I could have a chase scene. That, no, I did, I did that chase scene. A helicopter. No, I did a helicopter. I'm like, what is left? <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> well, you know, there there are limits. Uh, there are only so many, many ideas, and a lot of other writers have had the gall to use them first. But I think <laughs> it makes us de- dig deeper. Yeah. I think when you try not to repeat yourself and you're looking for some new way to do the job, it it that's where we are forced to go deeper into ourselves. You know, one of the things that really amazes me is when you do a series is keeping it fresh, you know, as we're pretty much talking about the struggle with that. Um, And I know right now I'm working on a big historical thriller, and I'm hoping it's going to be a series. And I'd love advice on how do you keep it fresh? I mean, really, you dig deep, but, you know, it's got to be tough. Yeah, Part of it is don't give too much away at first. You know, don't give it all away give yourself places to go and your characters ways to develop uh, otherwise you're going to back yourself into a corner which i've been capable of doing myself <laughs> do you map that out i mean if you're looking at you know if you, when you first obviously started doing the alphabet series you had to know that you're going to do a series um 
so did you map it out to try to make sure that you didn't give it all away up front? No, I wasn't very experienced when I began, so I didn't. I did it instinctively, which is, I think, what we a lot of what we do when we're writing. It's just hunches, it's intuition. I hoped to write the alphabet. I had no knowledge that I could pull this off uh, because sometimes you sell one book and nobody cares and nobody wants you to do number two. In mm-hmm. which case, you know, goodbye, short career. So. <laughs> When I came up with the notion of using the alphabet, I went through and listed in order as many crime-related titles as I could think of, and many of those I've used. So it was that first run at it when I didn't know what I was doing, that I was getting some good work done. Sue, one of the things you mentioned a couple minutes ago was this idea of the shadow self. And um, I know that in the past you've noted that writing mysteries requires becoming almost an armchair psychologist or psychiatrist and examining that dark side of human nature by exploring crime and guilt, violence, and justice. That's what murder is about, our dark side. And I think those of us who write about crime, you have to get in touch with the evil in your own soul. You might not quite embrace it and you don't want to act out but that's how you tap into the villain for instance which is always the best character as we know absolutely how do you do do that um uh, in other words how do you enter that dark place and then emerge again unscathed i think that's what makes resistance to me it's like having an out-of-body experience I have to leave Sue Grafton and become Kenzie Milhone, 1989, in a fictional town in California. Well, that takes incredible energy just to be able to lift out of your own body and insert yourself into this imaginary world. So I resist every day of my life. It's like, oh, I better start a load of laundry. I better clean my office. I better make a phone call because there's a piece of me I don't want to not be me. I just soon mm-hmm. not do that hard work. The trick is once she gets there, it is so much fun. It is so <laughs> much fun. So you pay a price, but it's it's worth it. Now, do you write at home or do you go somewhere to write? Because oh, I know I myself, it. when I'm at home, I will go throw that load of laundry in or what have you. I I have a house here in Santa Barbara, and I have one in Louisville, Kentucky. I have to have my stuff it all has to look exactly the same. Same computer, same mess on my desk at the moment. I have research books, and I'm comfortable when I am in that that boring setting where I feel surrounded by tools, you know, the tools mm-hmm. of our trade. When you sit I, down to write on a given day, and I've often wondered about what other writers do, because – I don't know about you, but not every day am I going to sit and just type right. for so many hours. A lot of it's thinking. I don't know. Right. I call it my gestation period. Right. Is that your process, or how does your process work? The same way, but the difference is that I put my gestation on paper so I can okay. look at it. I can't hold that stuff in my head. Ideas are very slippery, and if you're not careful, something that you think is so cool is just gone, and you can't even remember what you thought was so brilliant. So I lay it all out. Uh, not every day is productive at all. There are some days I'm stupid, and here's the way I characterize it. 
one day out of 30, I'm so smart, I make myself sick, but I don't know which day it's going to be. So I have to put in the other 29 days and sit here feeling stupid so that on the one day when there is a miraculous breakthrough, I am present. <laughs> I love that. You know, so many people today are all about this word count and, oh. you know, word count and write a novel in a month or all of this. Oh. And, you know, when you started today, Sue, you kind of mentioned that. I really hope that we don't lose the hard work that it takes to really write well. Right. And I have a sense that for for many people, we are losing that. Um, yeah. People are so quick to self-publish and so apt to try and do their word count and and so on and but they don't they don't pursue the quality that that's necessary right Right. i think that business of writing a novel in a month is another method for getting yourself out of your own way it's like you start focusing on getting the work done instead of oh my god oh my god i'm so scared so in a way it's a, a pressure that forces you to get on with it so I don't think it's bad in itself. I, I don't. I couldn't personally write that fast. It takes me two years. But for some people, just the, the impetus and the speed maybe pushes them into the good work eventually. You know, when you're when you're going to write, and like you said, it takes you two years. Are you an organic writer? Do you just sit down and start typing on page one, and then do you do the book, or do you outline? Uh, something in between. I think with the mystery novel in particular, I can't wing it. Elmore Leonard used to just put two characters down and start listening to what they had to say. I am not that good. <laughs> he was a wizard. But uh, by talking about what I'm doing and entertaining and discarding ideas, eventually I get to something that feels workable. Um if I outline an entire book, which I'm not capable of doing, it just seems boring. You know, check off that mm-hmm. thing. Written, check it off, check it off. So I think there needs to be room for surprises and unexpected turns that you didn't think of when you started out. You know, one of the keys to a great mystery is the idea of clue progression at just the right moment, playing fair, you know, with your readers, yeah. including red herrings. And I just don't, I can't sit down and sort of plan out what all those things would be a, a year from now, what I would be right. I would be thinking. Um, is there a process that you would recommend to, let's say, aspiring novelists on how to um, include or address those aspects, like the clue progression, um, as they shape their stories. Um, I know for me, basically, as I write, I think, oh, this would be really interesting. And then I often have to go back and foreshadow or it plant a clue earlier that, that makes it believable mm-hmm. later on. Right. I tend not to think of those terms because um, I don't know how to do clue progressions. I've never heard that term before. Now you've ruined me. <laughs> I'll start Oh, no. <laughs> If you work organically, which it sounds like that's what we're talking about, you'll come to a scene and you think, wait, this won't set up properly if I don't go back and lay in a tidbit or two. So to that extent, I keep track of where I am and what I need to to lay in as a foundation for the story. But the notion of quote-unquote red herrings, I never worried about that. 
You know, yeah. so like uh, the, the reader will project into your work all kinds of suspicions that you never thought of. So let them do the work. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But when you – so, you know, you need to trust your reader. When you put in those tidbits, do you just trust that they're going to pick up on them? or I Okay. I, I credit my readers for being so smart and so detail-oriented and I think it's true with mystery readers. They're looking at everything, and they mm-hmm. remember everything. And that's why I get nasty letters sometimes going, why did you do that? You know, it's like, Ugh. So Who's what's that? the worst letter you ever got? <laughs> oh, boy. Because we all get them. Every writer gets them. I know. And here's my policy. If uh, someone writing to me is polite, I'm polite. If they're rude, they have opened the door, and I am nasty. <laughs> it's like, you know, you wouldn't come up to somebody in public and say, you have just cooked the worst meal I ever ate if you go to your auntie's house for Thanksgiving. But a book, which might take two years to write, people will write you those little notes sniffing and complaining. I had a woman on Facebook who said, I'm so confused and disappointed because she wrote, a book W is a duplicate of a book she wrote before. Oh, I went after her. I said, I have never duplicated, never. Yeah. And so Good I said, you. you tell me which book it was. <laughs> and she, of course, had to back down. <laughs> Did she ever write you back? Well, I I chased her down. I figured out where she was in Florida. Uh-huh. And I wrote her a letter and said, you are maligning my work, and I won't have it. So oh, she was so sheepish. <laughs> I loved it. Good. Oh, good for you. <laughs> That's great. I always find it interesting when people are willing to to criticize, yet they oh. aren't sitting down in front of that blank, blank page exactly. and you know making a go of it. So, yeah. yeah. Well, There's, I love my readers, and God bless them. You know, books are expensive, and it takes time and energy to read, which is personally my favorite thing in the world. But uh, I'm not in business to alienate my readers. Right. Even though they sometimes complain about my salty language, you know, I don't do it to offend. <laughs> I had a girlfriend um, who did a series, and her character, main character, had a dog, and she would get letters regularly from people saying, "Why does why does your character never play with her dog? Why doesn't she feed her dog? Why doesn't she feed him dry food or wet food? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that won't exactly put you know move the story forward now, will it? But anyway. Right. Well, one thing I learned in my years in Hollywood, and this is not a lot, but this, never kill an animal. Never. Oh, yeah. Or a kid. A kid. Now, some people write about that. I cannot. That is way past my dark side. But yeah. you learn in a when you're doing a film script, do not have the dog die. You're going to have the wrath of God down on your head. Right. Yeah, I know, you can um, have, you know, 50 people get eviscerated or something. Oh, you have the dog get hit by the car and people will be up in arms. Exactly. Oh, so true. I learned, um, studied under John Saul for many years, and it was so interesting to me. The converse side of that was he often used children to do terrible things because children will be forgiven. Oh. Because they're a child. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't come off quite as harshly as if you have an adult doing it who has right. the wherewithal right. to know better. Hmm. Yeah, well, really I interesting. Do think there are children who are capable of quite awful things. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. And and they go on to do awful, awful things as adults, too. So, Yeah. So one of the things that I I remember reading uh, in um, 
um, an article that you had written where you called um, mystery writers magicians of wow. fiction. Yeah. And I just love that that phrase, magicians of fiction, and this idea of using sleight of hand yes. kind of to misdirect readers, but in a way that satisfies them. Right. So it's like watching a music- magician. You see what they're doing, and they pretend to be so open and sharing, and yet the joy of it is when they pull it off, it, you, you feel like a kid. You go, is yeah. that wonderful? If they do it poorly, now say you get one chance out of three. If I write a novel and the reader figures it out on page 10, they're mad at me. I knew it was the butler. If yeah. I get, they get all the way to the end of the novel and they can't figure it out, they're mad at me. It's like, why did she do that? That's when I get those little letters. The best <laughs> time is when they see what you're doing and you get to the end and there's that wonderful, oh, got it. Then we're all having a good time. I and when you think, when, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I also think of mystery writers as the neurosurgeons of literature. People imagine that mystery novels are second rate. It's not real literature, but it requires such precision and such accuracy that that's why it takes you so long to learn to do it well. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, because you don't plot, when you start a book, or you don't, not plot, but you don't outline, right. but when you start a book, do you have a sense of how it is going to end, or who's going to be the one who did it? Mm, yes, usually. Uh, I remember a terrible moment in W, when I was, I think, uh, on chapter 32 out of 36, and I woke up one day, and I, I thought, I have no idea how this book ends. It was the most horrifying moment of my life. I had to write to my agent and my editor and the president of Putnam and go, you know what, <laughs> we're just going to have a book with no ending this time. So they all <laughs> they all said, oh, you're so meticulous and you're so you'll figure it out. And I'm thinking, no, I will not. <laughs> of course I did, you know. But sometimes those moments of pure panic are what kick you into gear. Sure. And how long did it take you to figure that out? What that it's the moment of panic or the how to end W? How to end W? Yeah, <laughs> the moment of oh, I've had plenty of those. So I, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but well, no, how to end it? Yeah, part of it is just going back and looking at what you've done, and this I find is always helpful. For instance, writer's block. I used to dread that. I used to try to power through. Writer's block is your subconscious trying to tell you that you're off course. So mm-hmm. instead of trying to force it, go back about four chapters and start reading forward, and you will see where you made a wrong turn. Then you can go back and fix it, and it, the book is always better, always, because that shadow, which is your unconscious, telling you how to how to steer yourself. Yeah, Sue, I agree so much. You know, when I do seminars on, on writing, and I always tell people, trust the context and exactly. more than your outline. You know, like whatever you may have assumed uh, the direction of the story would be maybe six months or a year or two ago. Right. Now look at the context. And, you know, when we started, you said trust the process. And, and um, I have a sign up in my office that says trust the printed page. Um, yeah. And for me, I basically, if I get to that spot where I'm like, I'm not really sure exactly where things go, I just print out either the book or the last hundred pages and do exactly what you just said. 
read it in context, and then suddenly you're like, oh, the story begins to reveal itself. But, you you know, it does require that trust in the process, in the story, right. in the context, and, and the stories do come. And you, you know, so, even so to your point. You're so with your own ideas that you're not willing to ditch them. Yeah. You know, you can't start thinking you're a genius and every word is precious. It's not. This is all work in progress. I had an instructor years ago who said that when that happens, when you re- hit that spot of writer's block or what have you, to go back and essentially the same thing and look for the lie. Oh. Look, yeah, look for where you you wasn't quite, you know, and I don't know about you, but I have a, a sense, I get like a niggling feeling in my chest when I know something isn't quite right. Right. And, um, yeah, look for the lie. And so that's what I, well, I like kind of that. look for. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that um, when we when we write stories, I mean, readers will identify that lie. They will identify oh. it as you know, oh, that's not believable, or oh, you broke a promise, or you cheated there. Yeah. He he would never have known that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're very well, that good. Character at, wouldn't do it. Yeah. 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 I mean, absolutely. They're very good at finding the lies. So I like it. That's great. Let's um, protect against the lie. <laughs> yeah. Really. Really. So, uh, so Sue, uh, okay, in mystery, research is important in the sense that we have to get it right or readers will take us to task. They'll, oh, absolutely. Yeah, so how do you balance out the research with the actual story? I know a lot of writers that I meet, they're working on something and they're researching, 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 and I'm like, well, just write the story. Well, I have to read this book or I have to go visit this or whatever. Oh, and right. ends up becoming an excuse to not write the book. Well, <laughs> well, because research is so much fun. Nobody can criticize you. You know, you don't get a, a review in the New York Times about your research. So it's very tempting to just keep going and, and feeling like you need much more information. My new method is to write, and when I come to the moment where I need to do research, I stop and do it instead of trying to do it all in advance. The truth is you can't tell what you're going to need to know till you get there. So I, I still do research because I'm so insecure. I, I need to know what I'm talking about, but I don't make a fetish out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's key, um, Kathy. When we when I'm when we started, I kind of mentioned this idea of you and pitches, and some people will shape a pitch. Well, they'll say, "What if this happened?" or "Or what if that happened?" And I'm just curious, sort of your approach, but also Sue. Like when you have this interesting idea, um, Kathy. First of all, just how do you how do you frame that sort of pitch or what if question and then I'm curious if Sue if you follow it all the same process oh, good. I want to hear Kathy first yeah. <laughs> well um, again I, I learned this from John Saul and, and fine tuned it um, from Steve Barry and things that I've learned from him so I use a very structured method which is what if and I find that it helps especially new authors because oftentimes they want to start on page one and start telling you every single page through <laughs> 485 pages, right? Not exactly um, – that's not going to work with an agent or an editor. They're going to glaze over by, you know, the first four sentences. So it's a very structured process of 25 words or less, and I use the words what if just to kind of get them started. And it's 
basically a sentence that summarizes the entire through line of the novel. Like my mm-hmm. political thriller that's out right now, Capital Offense, is what if the First Lady is plotting to overthrow the President? And that's less than 25 words. It sums up what's going to happen in the novel. We know what's at stake. We know for whom. And so that's what I teach, is I try to teach a very concise way of summing up your entire through line. And for me, what I love about it is not only will I share that with my, my agent, but my agent will often use it to share it with an editor when they're you know trying to sell the book. Yeah. And the editor will use it to the sales team and marketing and et cetera. And then finally someday when I'm sitting down and signing books and someone walks up and says, what's your book about, uh-huh. I use it again. And in the meantime, at the very beginning of my process, when I can sum up my idea that concisely, I can also evaluate whether I want to live with it for the next year or two and whether I think it really can sustain a novel. So yeah. that's that's my approach. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely perfect. Um, I do that in a, what I call log lines in which I give a thumbnail summary of each of the novels. And then I also have a chart where I talk about the gender of the victim, the gender of the killer, the motive for the crime, and the nature of the climax. But but that's a little more involved than what you're talking about. You're, I think you're trying to help people clarify the idea in a tangible, brief form so they can see what they're dealing with and communicate it to somebody else. Well, especially at Thriller Fest, we have an event called Pitch Fest where they can sit down and essentially speed date with agents and editors. So they get about, you know, two minutes to pitch their project. And unless they're concise, like I said earlier, that agent or that editor that they're trying to pitch to is glazing over um, because oftentimes new writers in particular will want to summarize their first chapter, not their entire book. So it's interesting. Yeah, when I hear you guys do that, it always amazes me, impresses me. When people come up with log lines or pitches, and I'm like, yeah, that's brilliant. And then I look at my books, I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, how how I could possibly do that? I'm always impressed whenever anyone is able to do that. It, you know, it sounds like it should be pretty simple, but it's not. It actually no. takes quite a bit of time and energy. When I worked in Hollywood, I could pitch – I'd get home and think, what the hell have I done? I can't write that. But <laughs> so, so you have to be careful that what you pitch is something you can deliver. Because uh, mm-hmm. I think with new writers in particular, everything is in the work itself. An idea can be fabulous, and you can articulate it like an expert. But if you can't make it come along on paper, you are not in business yet. So true. And... You know, I also try to tell new writers, don't be in such a hurry to get out there and publish something. I see this time and time again, because once it's out there, it's out there for good. Even if you delete it, it's still somewhere. And that can be a very embarrassing thing later down the road, the more you learn about craft. Oh, absolutely. When you look back on your first books, do you feel like, oh, my gosh, I would write that differently or better than now than I... I I, I wrote seven novels before I got to A is for Alibi. Of those seven, number four and number five were published. One, two, three, five and six, or six and seven never have never seen the light of day because those books were the way I taught myself to write. Sure. Like scribbling, you know, that's not worth anything. And I would be 
appalled to imagine those out there in the world. You know, they went to certain editors who re- rejected me. I don't want to complain. I don't want to sound bitter. <laughs> but I did. You do learn to take rejection when you're first starting out. I totally agree with you. Everybody is such, they're in a hurry. How can I get an agent? How can I get an editor? And that isn't even the point. It's mm-hmm. can you write the next sentence well? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I just try to pound it into people. There's, you, you can't be in a hurry because you'll shortchange yourself. You will never fully teach yourself to write well if you run right out and self-publish. But that's a tough one to sell. You know, people don't want to hear that. No, they don't. It's so interesting. As somebody who's run writers' conferences, um, yeah, it's so it's so true. And I try to explain it's about the journey. And I don't know yes. if you feel the same way, but I realized the day that I got published that my life was no different than the day before. Right. right. And it really, you know, it seems that oftentimes that's the what writers think is the end goal, new writers, that's right. the end goal. But I've learned for me anyway, and I'd love to hear what you think, that the joy is in the writing and in yeah. the journey. It's not the day you get published, although a check no. is nice. But So I don't know how you feel about that. Well, Annie Lamott has a wonderful line. She says, you think when you finally get your book published, it's going to cure your mental illness, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but that mental illness, I think, is what gives us great books to write. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's 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 a strange way to make a living, in my personal opinion. Uh, football is another strange way to put make a living. You put on this funny costume and you go around banging heads and get paid for it. But in a way. That's what we do as writers. You know, we we come to our offices and put on a funny hat and off we go. So I I think it's a wonderful way to make a living. But I was told early on it takes you five years to get published and 15 years to make a living at it. And so Mm -hmm. I try to put it in perspective for new writers. You know, it ain't going to happen day after tomorrow. Well, I have to say, there's a few things you're saying here. I may plagiarize if, oh, if that's okay with you. <laughs> Just say, as my dear friend Sue Grafton said when we were having tea the other that's, day. <laughs> that's right. I think it's so important to to bring this up today because, you know, so many authors are hearing about these maybe success stories or something mm-hmm. of someone who self-published and made all this money yeah. or something. And now I think. You guys may know more accurately, but the last I heard, there were 5,000 self-published books coming out per day. Oh, my and gosh. That continues to rise. Uh, yeah. And so I just think it's so vital to tell people, look, don't rush out and do this, you know. Right. Make sure that what you're telling is really the best possible story it can be. Right. And then have other people look at it and, you know, right. people that you can trust to say, look, this isn't this isn't where it needs to be. And also have it edited if you're going to self-publish. And don't have your sister-in-law, who's an English teacher, edit it for you. You need to get professional, commercial writing, that that type of an editor. And so (laughs) I think that... um, Well, it sounds like all three of us came up in the old system, which mm -hmm. was writing and studying and doing the work and sending it out and getting rejected and going back to square one, which means when you get to the day when you are published, it's because you're working at a professional level. Right. And mm-hmm. that is the joy of New York publishing. When you get a book published through one of the traditional publishing houses, that says something. You have you have gotten your A plus 
Um, and I, this shortcut business with self-publishing, I just don't get it. But, so you know, true. I'm going to get hate mail over that, so don't, <laughs> don't give my address, you know, okay? <laughs> yeah, well, we probably all are, but it's really true. And, you know, as, as Stephen was saying, 5,000 books a day. I know the last number I heard was 450,000 books a year mm. were self-published. And, yes, there I think I've heard of less than five um, who aren't, writing in both um, traditional, right. you know, hybrid right. authors who are writing in both traditional and have self-published books. But I can think of less than five who've actually succeeded from um, just straight-up self-publishing. Some have right. gone on later. But um, it's very tough. And those people who have succeeded were working themselves to death because they had to do everything. Exactly. So well, the marketing and, and et cetera. Now, we all get those copies of self-published books with that little plaintive plea for a blurb. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like it forces the writer to go out and beg and grovel trying to make sales. And if you go through the traditional publishing process, you have teams of experts whose job is to market, distribute, and sell your book, which frees you up to do the good work. To do the work at it, yeah. Yeah, that is one of the most frustrating things for me is I just want to tell stories. I don't want to beg my friends on Facebook to buy my book. It's like (laughs) that's not what I would spend my life doing, you know. So um, I had David Morell on the show uh, maybe about a year ago, and he said he was talking with someone, maybe we're self-published, and the person said, man, yes, book sales are hard today. I've I've gone up to I have to write 12 books a year. And David's like, what are you even talking about, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I, what, what is what is that? This is not a book. You can't, nobody can, right. I, don't, I don't know how good you are. I mean, maybe there's one person in the world who can write 12 readable books a year. But, oh, you know, one a year. It's, yeah, that's a, it's just, yeah. an accomplishment. Takes the book in a month to a whole new level, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, My gosh. It's, yeah it's crazy. So, so, Sue, I know you worked some with Hollywood and now with novel writing. And one of the questions I was thinking of is the popularity of crime shows and mysteries over the last 15 or 20 years on television. How do you think that's affected the literary genre? Hmm. I I can't answer that. I can tell you I love what's happening in television these days. When I was working, it was an absurd business. Now some wonderful work is writing is being done. That new show, The Night Of, The True Detective, those are beautifully done. Um, that wasn't true when I was in the business, and I don't know that I could operate in that system at this late stage in my life. But whether that is reflected back on books being written, I don't know. Do you have an opinion yourself? Um, I think, I mean, this is just uh, uh, this is just me thinking. It's like when um, novels began, uh, omniscient point of view was so popular, and and um, and so then when television began, they naturally began to start to um, you know televise novels and so on like this and tell stories. But but as that medium of film began to grow and mature, they realized that you can do an awful lot of interesting things once you start flipping 
point of view, right? Mm -hmm. You can show the killer running through the forest and then the woman, you know, being chased and her point of view and his point of view. And so you can create a lot of suspense and really interesting dynamics and multi-layered stories by having lots of different point of views. And so it seems to me that in the last 15 years or so, a lot of novels have started to reflect that filmmaking aspect where we find multiple point of view books um, flipping from character to character. And I just think that the the two mediums are informing each other as one develops and we see tools of storytelling, then the other tends to pick it up. So I think on the one hand, you know, in television, this is wonderful. There's some great shows, just as you said. I mean, I can't even keep up with some of the shows that I want to watch. And, and, um, and you know, really dynamic storytelling that, that's long-form storytelling that might take 100 hours to tell, you know, the story. That's just amazing to me. Um, but I'm worried that the idea of long-form novels is – being hampered, in other words, with the nine-nine cent deals on Amazon and the shorter self-published mm-hmm. books, the low-quality, uh, low, you know, cost kind of books, is that I wonder if sort of these long, complex novels, these multiple point of view novels, and so on. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I wonder if they will find an audience. Well, that's our mandate, kids. We got to keep doing this, <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's always interesting to me too. To your point, Stephen, is um, in talking to people. And they will maybe read three to five books a week, mm-hmm. but yet they won't pick up that book that's a really big book. And I'll say, well, you know, why? If, if you're going to read three to five books, why wouldn't you just read one right. that's like, you know, a big historical or something? I mean, you're you're still turning pages. It just, <laughs> but yeah, it's really an interesting dynamic. And I wonder if our attention spans are getting shorter, and if I that's so. part of it, or what the psychological part, you know, aspect of that is. Oh, I think we are. We want it quick, down, and dirty. We don't want to invest time or energy in the reading process. What scares me is people who don't know the difference, people who can read a piece of crapola and then read something good and not see the difference. That's really scary, you know, those who cannot discern good writing from bad. Do you think that that's... um just not investing in really thinking about what you're reading? Yeah, possibly. Possibly. I because mean, some of the best books have so much subtext and, and yeah, you know, yeah. and it, it always amazes me, too. People will say, well, it's not Hemingway, it's not Steinbeck. And, oh, you know, I, it's, they were popular culture readers or writers back in their time. They weren't sure. classics right yeah. out of the gate. It's It's yeah. interesting. I'm Absolutely. very strict. When I start reading a book, I give the author... Ten pages. They better do their <laughs> job. I do. Yes. Because I've got other books I need to read. Now, if somebody says to me, this is a very slow starting book, just just be patient, then I'll do it. But that first ten pages better have something that strikes a chord in me. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, I, if I see a writer faking or cheating, I'm gone. You know, I just don't have sure. time for that. I'm similar, Sue. I mean, I maybe finish one out of every six to ten novels that I start. I just right. I don't have time. Right. I have so many books I want to read that that if within the prologue or first chapter what it is, they show me that they don't have a good grasp of characterization exactly. or twists or yeah. believability. I'm like, I don't have time for that. Right. Or point of view. Okay, yeah. so I think we've just started our own club, the 10 Pages Club. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> 
<laughs> I will do the same thing. Um, but I, you know, when I get into a novel that you know grabs me right away, oh, oh how delicious is that? Well, that actually brings up a good question for Sue, and that is um, some readers like to start at the beginning of a series. Um, Now, as far as your books, if someone's not familiar with uh, your series, uh, where would you recommend that people start at the beginning? Or is there one of the books that you would say, oh, this is a great one to get familiar with your writing or the movement of the stories? I I think the books are largely Uh self-contained. I think you can start anywhere, and you might stumble across one baffling reference but in the main I try to give orientation and that's a trick you don't want to repeat yourself and bore the bejesus out of readers who've been with you but somebody coming into the series new they need to know where they are and what's going on right Uh, Mm -hmm. I have my favorites J.S. for Judgment is a favorite of mine Ellis for Lawless is a favorite um some people, it's just you're in a strange motel and there's this book in the drawer and it happens to be Emma's for Malice. And you think, oh, I've heard of her. Daggone, I don't have anything else to read, so I'll try it. Uh, so that that's people accidentally stumble into the series. And it's always wonderful. They go, oh, wait, you can go back to A is for Alibis. Like, that's right. <laughs> that's, the, that's the plan. So there is a trick to being, you know, writing all of uh, your series books as standalones, essentially. Yes, yeah. But yet having, making sure that information is woven in, how how do you manage that? Damned if I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, that is, that is part of the challenge and the joy. Uh, you know, I write as though every book is the first book, and I write as though every book is the last book. You have to mm-hmm. give everything away. Not in terms of information or content, but in terms of of what you put into it. You have to put all of yourself into every book. And again, that's why I experience resistance from day to day. Like I'm lazy. I don't want to give that much. I just didn't coast for a while, please. But uh. there's definitely no coasting in this business. No, that's for sure. Not. And how do you see our business changing? You know, what kind of trends, I mean, do you see trends? Do you, uh, I don't. how do you look at things? <laughs> I don't, and you know, I just pay attention to my own work. When people sure. start talking about the financial end of the business, I just blank out. I start blacking out because I can't control marketing. I can't control which publishers are making money, and I don't care. Yeah. All I want to do is write and do the right best work I can. Uh, mm-hmm. The things I can't control, I just block because it's very distracting to worry about an end of the business over which I have no say whatsoever. That's I like great that. Advice, I'm going to adopt yeah. that attitude yeah. too. I like that. And it's very hard much. though, but it's Absolutely. it's so true. You know, we we only have control over the work that's before us and not yes. what Hollywood does or doesn't do, right. how many exactly. people buy or book or review, right. whatever they do. So, yeah. Well, um, so, Sue, do you have any um, any closing advice or any words of wisdom that you would love to pass on to the next generation of, of storytellers? I, I think it would be much of what we've talked about here, patience. You know, you need to read a lot. You need to understand what good writing is about. And 
early in the process, I think you tend to imitate your your heroes. Eventually, the the point is to find your own voice and to be as honest and as open as you can in telling stories. Uh, there are lots of textbooks, how-tos, and that can give you a hint now and then, but I, I think we are creatures of storytelling. We have been telling each other stories since the caveman. You know, watch out for the bear in the woods. <laughs> right. going, oh, wow, that's scary. So mostly patience, you know, holding on well, to your faith in yourself. Yeah, that's great. So true. Um, yeah, holding on to faith in yourself, trusting the process, looking at context, being honest, being patient, and... Um, you know, the stories, like you said, we're all hungry for stories, and we want stories that will touch us deeply, and those are going to take time to write exactly. and to shape. So, Well, Sue, it's been fantastic having you. I mean, our time has completely flown by for me. And um, and uh, if readers want to follow your work or sign up for your n- newsletter, where's the best place to do that? I, I'm on Facebook every morning. They can come visit me there. Uh, oh, great. I have a SueGrafton.com website that's being revamped right now. It's been it's about 15 years old because I don't do stuff like that. Somebody else has to do it. But I'm on Facebook, which I thought I would hate. I love it. I just chit chat back and forth in the quickest manner possible, answer questions. Uh, most of it is why we'll be out in the fall of 2017. <laughs> <laughs> I say that I every day of my life. to say that, yeah. <laughs> the interchange i say that's fun so anybody looking for me just go to sue grafton on facebook excellent uh for info, yeah for info about uh, my novel writing and, and retreats and intensives go to novelwritingintensive.com or uh, the one coming up in dallas in october has two slots still available so please Ooh. check that out kathy tell us a little bit about your site or where we can keep track of your writing Like Sue, I'm on Facebook every day. So Kathleen Antrim, A-N-T-R-I-M, and that is definitely the best place to find me. I'm coming over there to your house tomorrow. (laughs) I'm going to (laughs) find you. Come over for tea. Yes, let's do it. How about a glass of wine? Absolutely. (laughs) I don't care if it's 9 in the morning. Shoot. (laughs) Aren't those the best best glasses of wine? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So... For info about our other guests and and many other broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com. And it's been great having you here. And folks, always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time. Perfect.